uh, guys, welcome to the Beautiful Boxing Podcast. And my guest today, I think I've got to set the scene properly. I don't think I'd be doing this in the way I'm doing it. And I wouldn't be 62 episodes in if this guy hadn't literally got me by the neck and said, you need to start recording as soon as possible. And it was the kick up the backside I needed because once I left the New Age Boxing Podcast and I was happy with my Sundays and my evenings back, I was literally just going to bum around till the end of the year and work out what I wanted to do. And he was the guy that stopped me doing that, which is probably the best thing because I don't know if I would have come back and done it again. And you've heard me mention him numerous times. He's one of the young trainers I respect most in the game. We did our initial coaching badges together, so that's how long we've known each other. I don't know if that's seven or eight, no, six or seven years, something like that. And I've been privileged enough to watch him go from someone who was getting his amateur badge to now watch him on Sky Sports and I go, I know that guy. And as as cheesy as that sounds, it's also something that you feel a great amount of pride about because it's always good to see the guys you started out with go on to fulfill their potential. And I don't even think he's tapped into a fraction of what he's capable of yet. But I just want to introduce a damn good trainer and a damn good friend, Donald Smith. Don, how are you doing, man? Yeah, no, you know, I, I don't even know why it's taking so long to do this, man. Maybe I just had to, I had to say enough controversial things for you to get wound up before, you know. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most definitely. I mean, <laughs> we definitely had um, some good talks about you doing this. I always believed you was uh, capable of doing it, and I'm happy to see you doing it. You know. Not so happy with the content sometimes. You'd be ripping into my guys and stuff, you know. <laughs> the match, they are number one. <laughs> but, you know, it's all good. It's all love, brother. I appreciate it, man. It's good to see you doing your yeah. thing, man. No, I don't know, man. I think I've been a bit, I've been a bit nicer towards Matchroom recently. I think I have. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, you've been a little bit. You, 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 you turned the corner, but, I mean, there's still, there's still work to be done, you know what I mean? It's still a bit... Still a bit biased, but you know, and then again, people call me biased because obviously I work for Matchroom, so because uh, yeah. you um, still think I'm an agent for Frank, don't you? <laughs> you're definitely an agent for Frank, mate. <laughs> you got Queensbury boxers on, <laughs> hey, you know, yeah, I, I keep it British. No, no I'm joking, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm joking, bro. It's good. It's good. Do you know, I've almost forgotten that. I forgot to actually place you in the universe of boxing. So I got so carried away there. So just for you guys to understand who Don is, anytime you watch a fighter out of the Sims gym, whether it's a Tony Sims fighter or Peter Sims fighter, next time you watch it, just look in the corner. You'll see a heavyset man, you know, who looks wiser than his years. And you'll just see him in the background. He doesn't do too much, but that's Don. And, you know, in public... You don't see a lot, but in private, he's one of the, the key elements of the matchroom gym. So guys like Ted Cheeseman, Joe Cordina, Connor Ben have all been through the, the Donald Smith process. So this isn't just a guy who trains small hall fighters and so forth. This is actually the guy who, who can talk intelligently and articulately about what it takes to get guys onto that big stage, onto those pay-per-view shows. You know, a guy who knows what it's like, you know, dealing with Sky. And you know what? I appreciate it. I still don't understand how the hell you ended up there because I'll go back to when we did our course. If you remember, like we did, it was, it was a level one, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
was an amateur amateur course. Yeah, Jesus, that was um, terrible, man. Like that was the one time I learned uh, don't arrive hungover for anything. Uh, I didn't even know you was hungover. You was a nightmare on that course, though. You started so much trouble with people. It was funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you... <laughs> opinionated even then. You was you was very opinionated even then. But I love that. I really do love it. You know, it's, it's nice to hear people speak. Even if you don't agree with it, it's nice to hear people's opinions because people always give you know the diplomatic answers in boxing, and I'm not I'm not the one that I, I like to hear controversial. I like to hear people give it from a different point of view and not just try to keep everybody happy by telling them what they want to hear. You know, it's nice to just hear it raw and uh, truthful and how most of the fans are legitimately thinking. You know. Yeah, and and here's the thing. Remember, so after that course. We didn't really see each other because normally what happens is you see the guys on the circuit, you all kind of bump into each other because you've got fighters in the same tournaments or the same shows. And I'd always be there. I'd see the Leighton County lot and then the guys that you had beef with. And I'd always go, where's Don? And they'd just be like, nah, he's laying low. And... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, um, to be honest with you, I'd, uh, from, from Leighton County, I, I was coaching there and... I, uh, I had a separation from Leighton County because, um, you know, it, different things happen in gyms, you know, people fall out. And it wasn't more so myself. It was someone I was good good friends with and me and him were really close. And uh, his name's Joe, uh, Romanian coach. And basically there was a separation. We went to another gym in Leighton called Badar. And it was just like a normal private gym. And from there... I started coaching all the, the kids, the local kids in the area that would just come there and do weights. And they'd see me hitting the bag and they'd say, oh, you know, I want to learn boxing. I'll take them on the pads and stuff like that. And, you know, over, over time, I, I rekindled that relationship with Leighton County. And, you know, and I always had respect for them guys. So I approached them with a, with a lot of respect later on down the line and said to them, you know, it's always love on my part. Whatever happened in the past, let's leave it and forget. And now we're, you know, there's there's a great connection there. And sort of <clears throat> from when I was coaching at this Badar place, as coaching privates, I got a message from Mikey Saki. I don't know if you you know Mikey Saki. Yeah, yeah I a do. few times on MTK shows. He had that sort of infamous win over Shia Osgul. You know, stopped him in the last last round. And some people thought he was losing in that fight, but he came back and. Stockton was the greatest comeback people were talking about MTK show good fighter and I was just doing his pads and um, while I was doing his pads he, you know we did a few videos on, on the Instagram and people liked it and said oh man and he said to me you know you really thought I was pretty good on the pads and then he got signed by Peter Sims and from there um, he asked Peter if I could come down and because at the time Peter had a lot of fighters around him. He had Spider Richards, Rob Aksakbar, Ben Hall, Ryan the Ryan Lion, Ryan Walker, um, Mikey Saki, of course, and uh, and another oh, I forgot his name now, Cruiserweight, I forgot his name. Tony Conquest. Uh, Conquest, yeah, not not that was the one I was thinking of, but Conquest, yeah, of course, Conquest was coming and going there at that time, and uh, I got there just as um, Wadi Kamacho and left, I believe. So we had a few fighters there, and obviously with having that much fighters, it's hard to get through the pads. And uh, I came in the gym, and uh, Peter said, "Oh, let me see what you got." And then I took, I think I took Spider on the pads first, or and then obviously there was the impression. I said, "Yeah, cool, come down." 
And then uh, I said to him, well, at this point, I'd actually left my nine to five because in my head, I thought, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it as a pro trainer. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't understand the financial sides of it or anything. I just believed that everybody made us, you know, quite naively, just thought everybody made a lot of money in pro boxing. They did. Peter turned to me and said, mate, if you think, if you think you're going to make a lot of money in this, you're in the wrong game. I said, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, so I was already knee deep and I just started um, working with Peter's fighters. And then as time went on, uh, Peter's gym got a bit more quieter. Tony Conquest retired. Other fighters moved on. Ben Hall stopped boxing. The only person left was Spider. And me and Spider built a good connection with each other. And... Uh, Peter wasn't feeling too well at the time, so I was sort of helping out while he was just sort of recovering. And in that time, um, Tony Sims was like, well, you know, why don't you come over here? I've got like 10 fighters. You know, it'd be good if you can come over here and help me out. And I spoke to Peter and he gave me his blessing. And then I went with Tony. And then the rest is history. I've been with Tony for close to two years now. And uh, I've just been sort of learning under Tony and um, just just getting that final preparation for when I'm ready to jump off the porch and be, you know, my own independent trainer. You know, I'm 32 years old, so still, well, that's, the, that's the rundown of where I've come from since we since we was working as amateurs. It's crazy because when I, the, the first time I saw you like kind of back on the radar, it was a, it was a spider video. He'd put one up. And I was looking at the video and I messaged Craig. I was like, is that Big Don Smith? And he was like, yeah. I was like, where did you find... My literal, my message was, where the hell did you find him? Because like, <laughs> like you just disappeared. And he's like, no, 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 he's helping out. He's helping out with Peter. And I remember just yeah, saying at the yeah. time, I remember saying, listen, that's a good dude there. I was, and I told him the story about when we had to do our coaching course. And I was like, nah, nah, nah. He does that thing where he rolls his fists, mate. And I was hung over. And because he was rolling his fists, like, I just couldn't get any sense of timing around anything. Are <laughs> <laughs> you talking about the infamous sparring we had? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You... <laughs> Listen, you know when you're trying to figure out, like, number one, I thought it was going to be just like a classroom thing, right? And I'd, I'd only brought my gloves. You know what? I'd only brought my gloves and my wraps because I couldn't be bothered to empty the bag. I had like a notebook and pen in there. Then the guy's like, get your stuff. I was like, What? Yeah, man, they made a spa, man. That was crazy. It was oh. good, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It woke me the F up, that's for sure. <laughs> it was good, man. Yeah, it was, um, it's quite interesting to see. I don't know who from that course is still sort of coaching now. Um, it was fun, but yeah. you know what it did for me? It let me know that I wasn't that far away. You know when yeah. you you're looking at these guys, and you're like, "Nah, all I need is experience. It's not a knowledge thing now. It's just an experience thing." Yeah, of course. And a lot of coaching, I think, comes from instincts as well. I think you have to. I don't know. People say you have to be a fighter to be a coach. I always find it's easier to be a fighter to coach. You know, because remember, I had amateur bouts. You know, I mean, I, I was I was fighting. I was I was still wanting to fight when I was doing my coaching. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just went. So I wanted to help the kids out in the gym and just help the gym out because it was lacking coaches because there was a massive separation in Leighton at the time where um, all the guys from Elba, which is Elba now, they they were originally at Leighton and they left and created Elba. So there was no coaches and they needed help. And I said, yeah, man, I'll step up. 
So it was. I, I really didn't have much interest in coaching, but sort of now, as I'm growing as a coach, uh, I'm realizing how much my boxing ability has helped me to develop as a trainer. You know, I was doing pads from from back then as well, but people used to say, "Oh, you're really good in the pads," but I never really had a passion for it. You know what I'm saying? I didn't have a passion for for coaching back then. I just was doing it. It's only as I've gotten older that I've, I've developed more of a passion for it. And I think it's once you get deep into the science of it and you realise this is far more complex than people have you believe. Oh, 100%. 100%. And um, I feel like everybody's got their own formula that 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 works. But when, you're, when, you, when you have your own ideas and you sort of, you're not too heavily influenced by outsiders, you know, you, you can go in and and bring fresh ideas into, into boxing. You know, I've always been like the type of guy that's just sort of wanted to do it on my own. I, you know, I've studied myself, watched myself, watched, watched um, other fighters and took bits that I've liked and just put my own twist on it. Do you know what I'm saying? And I've always wanted to be that. I didn't want to be the next so-and-so. I always wanted to be the first of someone. Does that make sense? No, no, it does. And it, it, it's interesting because I think we've talked about this one before, obviously, off air. And I always said, sometimes as a coach, you just get lucky and the things you believe in connect with the person you're training. Yeah. And it's like this turbocharger. And you almost, so you, you, and you're like, I've never seen it done this way before, but I know this is what I was thinking in my head. And it, it's that great moment. And then you, you go, actually... I can, I can, I can do more with this philosophy. I can do more with this ideology, because I've got someone yeah. here who eats it all up. Yeah, and a lot, a lot of training. Um, Spider always says this to me. He goes, "You've got good coaches and you've got good trainers." Now, good trainers are great technically. They're going to give you that, you know, um, how to sit on your shots properly, fundamental work, and really teach you the the, the fundamentals of boxing. But then you've got a good coach who does, who deals with the mental side, you know, who's quite good at motivating you by saying the right things to you. You've got a personal relationship with them and you connect with them so well and you're happy to be around with them every day. You know, some coaches, I think, are better trainers than they are coaches. And, uh, you know, and if you, you know, you can't, to put them both together, I don't want to, maybe that's not the right names to call them, but, you know, you want to have someone who's going to train you that has both of that is like can motivate you, you know, emotionally, mentally, as well as, you know, physically, you know what I'm saying? I have that whole package. And I look at some trainers now today and they have all, you know, you know, they, they talk such a brilliant game and they break down boxing so well, but, you know, can a fighter relate to you? That's the most important thing I think for me in, in training is to have those two things together. No, no, you're right. And then the, then there are two kinds of, there are also two kinds of trainers almost like on another level as well where you've got creators and you've got finishers. And they're two, and if you put them in a room together, they're two very different breeds. Like you've got people, like me, for example, I love taking guys from zero. Like that's me. Yeah, yeah definitely. You know, definitely. Like don't give me someone who's had 100 fights. Like I have no interest in that because by then I'm like, I'm only fixing, you know, the errors that someone else has created. But with me, from zero, <laughs> we'll win whatever we want to win. Mm, yeah, exactly. I mean, I like I like both aspects of it. I think, for me, 
a whole package for me as a, if I say to me, oh, who's a Hall of Fame trainers, <clears throat> are guys that have took, you know, fighters from that from that baseline to world champion, you know. And really, as pro trainers, it's hard for us to always get someone at that base, sort of like never thrown a punch before, because they got to go through the amateur system generally, haven't they, you know. And then they work with amateur coaches and they move over to a different pro trainer in some cases. Um, I think, was it Virgil Hunter with Andre Ward was one guy that was with him as an amateur and right through to the pro and to the end. I think, um, yeah, Derek James with Errol Spence as well. Yeah, exactly. You know, and those guys are, you know, they get a lot of recognition for being good trainers, but, you know, can they do it with someone else now? You know, was yes. it a fluke the first time? Did they just have a good, get lucky with a good fighter? You know, these are things that you gotta, you got to ask. You know, you know, look at someone like Freddie Roach. He's done it with numerous different fighters. You know, he's a good trainer. You know, Emmanuel Stewart, another one, he's done it. He's took some guys from zero and he's also took some guys that had a few and took them further, you know. Exactly. And, and that's, but it, I think Emmanuel Stewart is quite interesting because in the beginning, he was like, I just want to train amateurs. That was his whole thing. He just wanted yeah, to train yeah, amateurs, yeah. help out the community. And then he, he realized that the guys he was creating were a problem. And then he went, I need to, I need to train them as pros now. And so he yeah. did that process. But as he got more experience, he was like, I don't have time to take people from zero anymore. And then they brought in guys like Bill Miller. And Bill Miller had James Tony, if you remember. Mm-hmm. So Emmanuel just became, he really became like management. Like he was the, the face of the Kronk, but it was guys like Bill Miller that did a lot of the coaching in there with guys like Gerald McClellan, for example. Yeah, you know. And um, I think a lot of coaches, behind the scene coaches, they don't get enough, um, some of them don't get enough recognition. Some of them are quite, you know, they're quite good coaches. You know what I mean? But, you know, I'm 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 a behind the scene coach, and I won't I won't honestly go online and say, oh, I'm responsible for any of the fighters that I'm matching. Listen, Tony Simmons is the top guy there, and if there's one man that's really hands on with his fighters, it's Tony. He's very hands on. All he might say to me is, "RD, take him on the pads for me." You know what I mean? And in that time, I can do as much as I can with him. You know what I'm saying? And and maybe do some pad work with them, but also, you know, if, if the boys tell you what my pads are like, it's not, you know, let's just work, work, work. I'm, I love breaking stuff down with them, you know. Tell them, I'll move your foot just a little bit to the left, turn your hip with it. When you set that way, you can come back with this and stuff like that and, you know, really breaking it down. And I think that's what um, a lot of different, if you're if you're a behind-the-scenes trainer, you know, that's what, that's what you're there for, to just add a little bit of a different dimension to what the top guy's doing. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and I like that you broke it down that way. And the reason I like that is you, I see a lot of these young guys, right? And they show up in mm. the gym with their pads and they go, and then they go, right, I'm going to go and train someone as a pro. And they don't like the no, idea that they've got to sit under someone. Yeah. And you got to goes, man. And you explain yeah. to them, you go, young man, listen to me. The things, there's a reason why these old heads are respected the way they are because there's certain things that happen to a fighter that you need experience in order to cope with. It's It can be things like you've got to be able to make sure, you know, you're picking the right gloves. You'll make sure the rings are so, you know, the right c- 
condition, all these sorts yeah. of things. 100%. I mean, to be fair with you, look, Terry, the, the, the years I've been coaching behind the scene now is coming up to five years I've been behind the scene. And still, I still feel like there's so much stuff for me to learn, man. And sometimes you can get a bit, some, I hear some, some trainers, they do get a bit cocky and feel like they know everything, but no one's bigger than boxing. The sport itself will always be, there'll always be someone that will show you something new in a fight, in sparring or something, whenever it is, and you'll be like, wow, you know, I didn't even see that. You know, the first time I came in the gym and I worked with Tony, I had already believed in my head I was such a good trainer and I was sparring with Tony's boys and then Tony said something to one of the fighters and I was like, wow, that's so true. How did he even spot that? <laughs> that's when I realized at that point, I'm still a baby and I've got so much more to learn. You know, and I don't, I don't, I don't testify to be the full product now. I'm still, and Tony will tell you himself, even him, he still learns to this day. He's still growing. I see him watch other trainers and, 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 and watch things and, and be like, what, and start implementing it in the gym. So he's, it's a constant development thing as a trainer. And that's why I think, you know, good trainers always show because they're willing to learn and willing to grow. No one's bigger than the sport of boxing, man. And we all have to, we sometimes humble ourselves in the game and just be students of it, even as far as we go, you know. That's spot on. Because I look at that and I go, especially, you know, when you're with the older trainers, I always say to myself, I can give them ideas, but they're giving me their experience and they're giving me a process. They're giving me something. Like, for me, I look at someone like Tony Sims. He's already got his thing packaged up. He knows what he wants to do. And then every so often, he might just add a different flavor to it just to go, okay, I think boxing's going this way, so I need to adapt a little bit. Whereas with me, I'm still like, I need to get that package together because it's all very, like, when I, when I train people, in my head, I know it's very mechanical. So I'll write things. I'll have column one. What are all the problems he's having, right? It might be he's getting caught with the left hook because he's dropping his right hand. And then I just have a solution column as number two. This is what we're going to work on until I can tick those off. Whereas I know, you know, the experienced heads, it's just in their head. That's how they think. Just bing, 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 bing. But I still have to go through that process. Right, right, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's your method of getting around it, you know. And while we're still young trainers, this is what, this is what our time's there for because I imagine now this is what he probably Tony had to do 20, 20 years ago. Remember, he's been coaching for 35 years. Yeah. He's been coaching for longer than I've been alive. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who am I to go in there and, and, and think I know it all when a man like that is standing in front of me? I humble myself in front of guys like him because there's so much, you know, he's been where I've been and sometimes I've got... About a year and a half ago, I got really eager. I was like, I need to find some fighters. I need, And you know I was calling you. I was like, give me all the names of the fighters that are good in the amateurs. I want to sign them. I want to sign them. And Tony said to me, D, slow down. He goes, you're 32 years old, mate. There's no rush. What are you rushing for? He goes, just keep keep learning, keep studying. He goes, your time will come, mate. Listen, I was. he told me he was Terry Stewart's number two. He worked with... Um, uh, Jimmy Matt, there's loads of different people Tony was number two for. He was a number two before he was a number one. And he said, don't don't rush, you know, find your feet in the game. When the time's right, you'll know, you know. And I'll let you know when the time's right. And I feel like finally we're on the cusp of, of, of making that time now. Sort of in the next year. This year will probably be the first year I sign a fighter. 
on my own and, and generally feel like I'm ready to be independently that, that trainer, you know. No, that, and then that'll be a big moment when you're the when you're the guy in the ring, you know, where where you're the guy giving the orders yeah. and I'll be watching going, Oh yeah. <laughs> I might end up being your second, you know that. <laughs> You're more than welcome to, man. I have to build a little stable of my own because, um, you know, as much as me and Tony work together, eventually I'll I'll, I'll have to be my own man, won't I? You know, so, hey, you're more than welcome to. <laughs> you can jump in the corner with me, brother. That'd be a mad corner. <laughs> Tell me about it. Old school. <laughs> no, no, it's good, but let's let's almost delve into into the the workings of the gym because obviously you work with guys that are known to people. And the one that, right. for me, the one that elicits the greatest reaction in all the time is still Connor Ben. Now, you know me, I, I love Connor. Uh, I, can yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can never figure out why, but in my head, I always think, if you take away his privilege and all that sort of stuff there, right? This is the kid that doesn't have to fight. Connor Ben could have gone off and been a lawyer, been a doctor, been an actor. He could have done anything because he's had that kind of freedom. But you see this right. guy show up and in every fight he's prepared to have a tear-up with whoever's in front of him. And I'm like, I respect that because there are people who are going to war because that's all they have. I'm like, you have options in life and you've still got it in you to go to war. Yeah, 100%. You know, and I think, do you know what? People say um, are fighters born or made? There's always that debate, right? Yeah. I'm I'm a true believer that fighters, true fighters are born. You know, you cannot teach someone how to have a fight in them. Someone needs to have been bred into violence. This is not football. This is a violent sport. You need to have to have that inside of you. I can't teach you how to be a killer. Excuse, I don't mean literally kill someone, but you know what I mean with that kind of killer instinct in you to be to be able to turn up when you know, man, a guy says to you fight and you fight you know what I mean and you know how to tap into that side of you people are born with that I don't think you can teach that I've worked in the gym for years and tried to teach people that have got no heart how to have it and you either have it or you don't I work with Connor all the time and I can tell you regardless of who his dad was if Connor walked in the gym and his dad was, was Joe Bloggs he'd be a fighter guaranteed he's he doesn't slack in the training. He works just as hard as all the other boys. He don't get it easier. He, if anything, he pushes himself hard. You know, I wouldn't say he works harder than any of the other boys because all the other boys do their homework just like he does. But he he, he can never be... Like, I believe Connor will go far based on the fact that he's a fighter and he works hard and he's determined to make it. And those are the three things for, for, for a good fighter, the recipe for a good fighter. I mean, you know... You, You'll, you'll see in time. I mean, regardless, Nigel's not really around him like that. He's out here on his own and his life is dedicated to boxing. When I talk to him, we talk about boxing and, you know, it's, I love working with Conor because we've both got that similar passion towards towards boxing and growth and development, you know, in boxing. And that was going to be my next uh, question. Is mm, is Conor a good student? Because you can get fighters who are, who are incredibly hardworking. Okay. And they could, they'll do everything you ask them to do. But then there are other fighters yeah. who will take what you've given them and they'll dissect it in their head and go, he showed me how to do this. Is there another right. way I can do that? Can I set it up a different way? You know those guys that will take what you give them 
and then they'll kind yeah. of really break it down or they might come to you and say, do you know what? I was watching Sugar Ray Leonard and he does this move and they go, well, why does he do this move? And how can we incorporate it into what we're doing? Because I, I like what it was doing. And when I practiced it at home, it felt natural. But there's certain fighters that will just come to you like that. Yeah, I think there's um, the one, one fighter in our gym that's probably the biggest student of, of the game and does come with that kind of mentality is probably John Ryder. Um, John Ryder really breaks down boxing, you know, and he, he lives it. You know, when I work with John, it's the most informative training I get to do because we, we'll sit there talking while we're working on the pad. We sit down breaking different shots and you'll say, oh, did you see when Canelo done this? Or did you see when I did this in the last fight? What if I try to go this way? And I say, all right, cool, let's try it this way. Ah, no, John, that don't work. we got to do it this way. And then, you know, we're literally having a debate. Those, I love working with John Ryder. Like, Connor's not exactly that type of fighter. I believe in the future he may become that. Um, he definitely is a student because if he's more of a, he's there to be taught. You know, Tony would tell Connor, do this, do that, and he does it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. He's not, he might not come to you and say, oh, I saw someone do this. He may not do that, but he's there. He's always asking questions like, oh, what do you think of this? And how do you think I did? And, all right, cool, what can I do? All right, boom. He, he's, he's really, he really is interested in improving himself as a fighter. But uh, more on the way you described it, I think that would suit more John Ryder. So that's the way he moves. Which is interesting, because if you look at John Ryder, I, I always look at him as a... He's got these, these mad old-school elements to him. You know, like, you know, like you, we've, we, we talk about this. You get your standard English fighter, don't you? Back straight, yeah. you know, one-two yeah. move, one-two move. You look at Ryder and how Ryder moves, and he, he honestly looks like he's just come out of a street fight in the 1950s sometimes. You know when you look at that kind of... It's just old-school hunched shoulders, and he's, he's, working, he's working the pelvis... He, and he's just throwing shots, like, you know, just throwing shots. Yeah, yeah. John, John, John calls himself the, they call John the gorilla. He's a, <laughs> he literally is, he, he is the, he's a beast when it comes to, to being in the ring. He, he is a, he is a slight throwback fighter, you know, he, he, but he is a bit new school as well. You see John shoulder rolling sometimes in the gym, you know, and sort of, coming forward, small steps, head rolling, hooking and rolling and, you know, that type of style fighting. And I think what John's done over the years, he's, he's made something, he's made it work for him. He's got his style now and he's just trying to develop that style and perfect that style now, you know. Yeah. And I don't think we've seen the best of John. I think he's one of those fighters that's going to come on with, with time. Because he's a student of the game, he'll keep improving. You know, and I still think we, 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 as you saw in that Callum Smith fight, everybody had John written off in that fight, man. You know, we heard it. We was in the gym. We heard people saying, "Oh, a couple rounds and stuff like that," but we didn't, we didn't believe it for one second. We know what John's capable of, and you know, when you write John off, that's probably the worst thing to do because, you know, that's when he works that extra bit harder, and you see him, you see him show up. You know, like he did against. Um, Jamie, Jamie Cox, everyone thought he might even lose that fight. Came in and won that early. And then um, he came in against Callum. And I believe, as many people do believe, he won that fight. You know, I was sitting ringside. I was there. I was in his corner. And after the 11th, I just said, John, if you if you keep going here, you just don't get stopped. You've won this fight. 
you know, and surprisingly, you didn't win it. But you know, it's um. What was that changing room like after the fight? Because if you remember, that was I think that was almost like when, and I'll, I'll call you guys the collective, the Matchroom Gym, throwing Darren Barker. I think that was the point where you were like, "Yo, there's something not right here." Uh, I don't think there's something. You know, it is. People can say there's something not right, and our team's being targeted, and I don't want to believe that. You know, I'm still. Remember, I have not been in this game as long as Tony's and Peters have been in this game. They've seen it all, so it, you know they 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 might say that. I, I haven't heard that any of them say that, but I know a couple of people thought that our team was being targeted, and I don't think it's. I don't think that's the case. I just feel like I don't know, man. I just think judges need to be held accountable for when they when they make scorings like this because even the Ted Cheeseman fight, the scoring was way off in that fight. The scoring was way off in 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 the Callum Smith and John Ryder fight. And you know, I mean, there is the conspiracies of Scott Fitzgerald and Fowler fight was always the bigger fight to happen next. And then obviously the Canelo and they had Anfield booked, you know, for for um. For, for Callum and Canelo to have had that fight, so John was was putting that fight to lose. But you know, I don't know, man. I, I I just think that the judges that made those scores they need to be held accountable for it, man. It's not right that they can just rob someone. You know, people don't realize when you do those things, it's not just you know a fighter that takes a loss and walks away. You're robbing his children of a future. You know, he could potentially have got a Canelo fight after that and would have took, like, a, 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 a large paycheck. And that would have set his kids up for life, you know. And it helps everyone. It helps Tony out. helps all the, you know, all the boys in, in, in the gym because it's, it's, it's money being invested in John, you know what I mean? And it's just good for all of us, you know. But uh, Do you guys think you get the rematch? I, I doubt it. I doubt it, man. I don't know. I, I, that's something again you'd have to speak to, to to Tony about and and maybe Charlie about. But back to what you're saying about the change room. The change room was 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 not great. We had Dan Barker in there. We had um, everyone in there was just like, "You won that, John. You won that." Everybody knew you won it. I was shocked, but I was also proud of John, man. I was proud of him because. He shot so many people out that day. Even though we, he lost, we knew he won. You know what I'm saying? We was walking out there out, out of, when you're walking from the ring to the change room. Everyone was coming up to him saying, you won that fight, John. Even some of the scouts was like, fair play, you won it. You won that fight, you know? And it was, it was, it was like, um, it was an upsetting feeling, but also a proud feeling at the same time of how proud we was of John that he'd done so well in that fight, you know? Was that the same one where IFL leaked out that interview where Darren Barker and Hearn just went at it and Hearn was like, nah, there'll be, there'll be no rematch? Oh, yeah, yeah, that was, that was the one, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's not going to be a rematch. The fans want to see it, though, funny enough. Any time you see Callum Smith talking, you see, look in the comments, they're like, rematch John Ryder. I've put a few tweets out saying, you know, rematch the gorilla, you got to fight him again. It'd be good. But Callum... Do you think that fight could do Anfield? Uh, so no. I think I think it could, but 
but they need to build up the the story again. If you if you if you see yeah, what I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to rebuild that story, and then you've got to almost turn Callum into the bad guy. You know, like you got to say, look, all of Britain's against you, Callum. And then you know what Liverpool are like? They're like, nah, we back our own. Then they fill Anfield just yeah. to show you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's a good good shout. You should be a promoter. <laughs> <laughs> You say that, but then I, you know, I asked myself this because I, I recorded I recorded a show about Dazone yesterday, and then I asked myself, right. could I do what Eddie Hearn does? Because you think about what this guy does; he's on the road like at least 10, 11 months of the year. Yeah, right. And on a human level, now listen, I give Eddie Hearn shit for everything, right? But on a human level, I'm like. How do you maintain your family? You know? Yeah. What toll does that take you on you as a man? I've got, I've got to ask this as a question. Where would boxing be without Eddie Hearn? As much as we give him stick, would we have the shows, the big event, the pay-per-views we're having, would they be there without Eddie Hearn? Because as much as people dislike him, how much has he done for British boxing? I think it's unbelievable. So I think it's complex. I think the answer to that is quite complex because if we isolate Eddie yeah. Hearn and we go, okay, Eddie Hearn as a promoter, he was terrible until he got Frotch Groves, right? He was terrible. He, he, he... Yeah, well, no, no one starts off in their, in their craft as, as the best, but they grow and become better. No, but, and yeah. so, so this is my point. And so if you go back pre-Frotch pre Groves one, Hearn's just another guy. And I'm not saying that to be disrespectful. It's just, he was just another promoter. You know, I, I remember the days when he had Audley Harrison and he was traipsing around London looking for a gym for Audley to train at. We used to give him a hard time. Just, you know what I mean? Because he, he was Eddie Hearn. It was like, who are, who are you, man? Like, fuck out of here. But what happened is he, he got Frotch Groves one. It went the way it did. And then all of a sudden, everything that Hearn had had, the private school education, the selling windows, the sports management, the doing other things in matchroom that all came together because it was like, here's a fight that can be potentially huge if someone can just push it the right way. And he was the guy yeah. that was able to push that the right way. So I think those three people needed each other. Groves, Frotch and Hearn needed each other. And then after that, Hearn showed what was possible if you gave the British public, people they could believe in and a story they could believe in. And I think his problem is he's been a one-trick pony that he's tried to do that and he's almost done it from a perspective of he thinks it's all him. If Eddie Hearn says something's true, the world will believe it. And I wish he'd go back to building stars, putting them in competitive fights and then understanding that a fight in a rematch will make you more money than waiting two years to make the fight itself. You know, that's what's killing boxing. I don't know, man. I think he's doing that already, though, isn't he? You know, like um, building stars, taking guys from from nothing to world champs. You know, who? And okay, takes, wait, wait, hold. On. Let's go through this one now. Who? Who's he done that with? It take, but it, yeah, but it takes time to do that, though. You know, you, a fighter's career can last sort of. They could start from their debut, and then it won't be till five years in that they actually get a world, sometimes eight years in until they get a world title shot. You can't rush guys before their time. You know, okay. I think you have to be patient. So what, let's just say, what year was it that, that Eddie freely had his breakthrough? Was it 2014? Yeah, 
GA40, I was, yeah, I'd say about 2013, 2014, yeah. right? That's when he obviously took down Barker to a world title. Um, but, you know, you know, you've got to look at, we're now 2020, so that's six years, I'd say, he's been really, he's had Joshua, um, that he's talking, he's had... Uh, but, but Joshua's Charlie a gimme, Edwards. hold on, hold on, Joshua's a gimme. It didn't matter who Joshua went with, right? There was money there. Of course, yeah, of course. you got to start off with Joshua, and it is the biggest thing, you know. And, yeah. uh, you know, um, he's got a few guys world title, world title opportunities. It's down to them to obviously win them. No, no, but, but, uh, but let's break that bit down. And, and, and so, you know, I know you always tell me that I'm Team Frank. This is the one thing Warren has overheard. What's that? Warren will get you a belt, but you know you'll have at least two or three defences before it goes. Hearn... You win it, you lose it. Well, who who is who has Frank got a belt lately to him? Well, okay, no, no, lately is a different question. But if you look at the in at the trend in the last six years, I'd say. Oh, no, no. I mean, okay, let's look at Billy Joe. How did Billy Joe keep that WBO middleweight title for years? And I still can't name you a meaningful defense that he had. Frank looks after you in that sense. Like when you like with Frank, you have no profile till you get to world title level. But when you get to world title level, you'll sit there for a long time. I think with Hearn, you'll shine bright from from your debut. You'll shine really, really bright. You'll have a profile. You'll win a vacant belt, and then you'll have to defend it, and you get no protection at that point. That's the issue I have with Hearn. I'm like, you don't seem to manage the career once they win the world title. And that's what makes it difficult because every other promoter seems to do it. Mm. Got, uh, it's hard to... Do you know what it is? You say it's Hearn, but at the same time, these fighters are managers. That's the manager's job to do that, to manage their fighters' fights. If the manager says, I don't want this fight for him, you don't have to take it. You, you get pressure from your promoter, yes. and your promoter will say, well, I can't really make you as much money as you want on this fight because this fight don't sell as, as much. But then you, you would say, well, if it don't, and that's probably what a lot of, whereas Frank might have been prepared to do that. You know, Eddie seems to, you see Frank and some of the opponents Frank fires get are, are a lot more easier than what you're going to get on a matchroom show, let's say, uh, which I don't know if it's true, it's debatable, people debate it, but, you know, whenever you get a fighter on a matchroom show, as soon as they pull an opponent that's not credible, all the fans start criticizing the opponent. Oh, he's a journeyman. Da, 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Okay. So I think it's, it, it, it's it, the promoter's job is to make as much money and make as big fights as possible. That's Eddie Hearn's job. You know, your manager's job is to manage your fights and you know negotiate with the promoter who we want and who we can take. Can we make this big? Can we make this a big fight? Eddie Hearn knows the numbers. He'll, he'll know, he'll look at an opponent and say, all right, yeah, he's he's not going to make much if you fight him. He we can make this big, we can make that. You know what I'm saying? Usually thinking that Eddie Hearn manages these fighters. There's certain fighters that are probably fighting to match him. And, um, Do you remember when they were talking about making the Wilder fight? And there was, there was an Eddie Hearn interview on Sky Sports. And they asked him about, well, why can't Joshua go and box on, on Heyman's network? And Hearn's response was, this is word for word, we own Anthony Joshua. Not his manager owns him. Eddie Hearn said, we own Anthony Joshua. 
He let it no, sit for about three I'd seconds. No, no, no. Hold on, hold on. Hold on. And I'm happy to be sued on this point because this is true. He goes, we own Anthony Joshua. He let it sit for about five seconds. He comes back, he goes, no, sorry. What I meant is we own the promotional rights to Anthony Joshua. And then I was like, right. at that point, I was like, you've revealed what this game really is. Hearn will give you options, but then he'll say, if you don't accept the options we're giving you, you might not fight again for another six months. Yeah, that's a promoter's job, though, isn't it? You know, that's a, a promoter can only do what's best for their promotional company and also their fighters that are fighting under their banner. You know, they're going to try and do... But their their job is to make the most money for their fighter. You know, certain fighters, you know, that, that match should maybe have investments in might get a bit of a... You know, let's just say, I don't know, they might get a bit of an easy road because there's money invested in that fighter. You know, they want they want to see them really make it all the way. But, you know, any I don't think it's the promoters, the promotion company can't say they own, a, you know, they own a fighter. No, it's, 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 it doesn't really work like that. That expression sits with me when he said, we own Anthony Joshua. And it was that kind of slip. And Hearn doesn't make many slips in public. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> now, we, now we know what this is about. And not only do we know what this is about, we now understand that, you know, Sky have got a piece of that as well because the zone were honest and they said, look, we can't have Joshua, in, I mean, until 2021 in the UK. Then, you know, all bets are off. So that's going to be interesting to see what happens when when the zone come knocking and then, you know, Eddie's got to, he's got to pick his side. Ever changing in boxing, isn't it? You know, yeah. the, the, the times change quite quick in boxing. But, but let's, let's well, I, I do want to dig into this. You know this. What? I'm, I'm one of the people that just, I believe whatever it is for the fighter is what's best. I'm on the fighter's side, you know what I mean? And, you know, I, I saw Eddie put out a show the other day and some people were criticising the card, saying, oh, this is a terrible card. And I, I said something to one of the guys in a comment because fans only see it from their perspective. In life, everybody only sees things from their own perspective. And they look at a card and slate it and say, oh, they're terrible fights. But imagine how that person on, on the fight on the, on the card is feeling, seeing that, knowing, you know, they're just trying to make it in their career. You know, they had Dawn Smith on the card, had the, um, the Terry Harper on there. You know, these people are just trying to provide a, a, a living for their family. And if you look back maybe 10 years ago in boxing, the kind of money these guys are making in boxing, they weren't making that before. Now they're making more money. And Eddie Hearn is giving this opportunity to so many people that put their lives on the line get punched in the head week in, week after week and now they're making a decent bit of money and actually getting paid it's a good thing boxing's not a charity so, though that's the problem so so for Terry Harper to buy student for Terry Harper to buy her it's house not, it's, not, it's not a charity um, no no professional sport is a charity but if there's any sport you want to get charity to definitely people that are putting getting punched in the head week in week out I mean it's the most brutal sport out there you know okay. football is, is, is harsh but you know boxing is probably the hardest sport out there you know? but let, okay so let's be honest let, let's look at guys who are really respected in boxing like fight, fighters who if you mention their name you they rarely get criticised like Ted Cheeseman's an example I think of because he's quite close to, to you guys right I look at Ted's career and I go Part of me thinks he's been mismanaged because I'm like, bloody hell, this guy jumped in with Carson Jones when? For a start. But then I also look at Ted and I go, Ted's still young. And 
he's had that kind of Huey Fury type upbringing in boxing where he's been in super tough. And I go, you've still got enough mileage in you that now nothing's going to phase you. But I always know I'll watch a Ted Cheeseman fight. I will always watch it because he doesn't seem to get any walkovers. And I have no issue with that. That's what I like. Yeah? When, when, when Hearn does that, I like it. When you never, if you go under Eddie Hearn, you're not going to get an easy ride in, in terms of, and you're going to feel that pressure from the promoter to say to you, take this fight, this is a good fight. And you know, whatever, even the journeyman that fight on match him, ain't no walkovers. So if you see someone really make it, and Eddie says it in his interviews, if you're good enough, you'll make it. And that's what it is, you know. And a lot of fighters, I've tried to sign fighters recently, and they've said they don't want to sign to match him. They know that their first 10 fights in Matchroom is going to be hard fights. They want an easier easier route and go on maybe a small show where they can pick the opponent and have easy fights until they're ready to start taking hard tests. Which I don't agree you know with saying? either. So that's another thing where, see, I, and when people, have put, when people ask me for advice on that, I say, look, go for the hard fights because the sport's about respect. No. Yeah, really, it's the respect. You learn, you learn so much more because even someone like Spider, he had it. Spider, I don't think Spider's had an easy fight. You know, he's yeah. never had an easy opponent. Us going through it, you know, some of the journeymen he had to fight even were. He fought a guy called Pavanito. Oh my God, we always talk about this guy to this day. Pavanito was a tough guy. He's like Portuguese champion, and I think that fight, Spider was really sick as well. And. He blew out in the in the last round of six rounds. He outboxed him, and then the last round he took a lot of punishment. And um, <laughs> and then he, we got through the fight and we got the decision. But when we looked into this Pavanito guy, this guy was everyone after Spider. He was stopping. I was like, God, who the hell is this guy? You know what I mean? <laughs> Masha could pull these guys out of nowhere. I don't know where they get them. They're all good. But you know what the so problem he, is. He, because I, I think the art of good matchmaking is you, you present a fight to someone like a Tony, right? And you should be able to explain to Tony how his guy can win. No, this is how your guy can win, but this is why the fight's competitive. I don't think Matchroom have got that kind of matchmaker. I genuinely think... Uh, no, I, I don't know. I don't know who the matchmaker is currently. I know they've had a recent change around them. Yeah. Remember that guy's uh, at Paul Reddy? Paul Reddy, he's no longer there. He's left now. But you, you saw what he did. This guy went on box rec, went on YouTube, said, I'm making these fights. Like, but it was like he was playing football manager. Like, he was just fantasy football, the way he was doing it. And you're like, have you done any research into these guys? I mean, I, I don't know. We, we can criticise um, a lot of the managers, all the, the, the matchmakers and stuff like that, but you know, it's, it's, it depends how you look at it. What's your objective with the fighter? Are you trying to build this fighter? You know, are we just going to say, I want hard fights for all my fighters? You know, it's, it's, it's different fighters get different treatments, I guess. I'm not sure. I'm just, you know, as fans, you want to see every fighter have a hard fight, right? But me being on the other side as a trainer, I want a tough fight, but I don't want a fight that's too soon for my fighter. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't want him to have a guy that, that we could potentially lose to because he wasn't ready for this fight in our career, which can happen. Do you know, do you know where I think Matchman have got it right? Okoli. Okoli's career. Let's, let's ignore the style for a second. Let's ignore you know, whether it's, 
it's fan-friendly in terms of style. You look at Okoli's record in terms of names, it's a steady progression of names. Like, it's not, he doesn't go backwards. That's the one thing I respect about his career so far. He doesn't go backwards. And that, oh, yeah, yeah. that's when fans get frustrated. Fans get frustrated when we see you go, get to a certain level and then the next fight's a step back. Kel Brook's an example. Mm. Kel's never fought yeah. a welterweight of the level of Sean Porter since he beat him. But then again, that, that could be done to Kel's management, you know what I mean? Eddie would probably put names forward to him and his management might say, no, nah, we don't want that fight. You know, and Kel, Kel Brook's a big name. He probably has a lot of pull over him. But sure that he can say that. If you're like a nobody, a nobody fighter, not a, we'll say a nobody fighter, but an up-and-coming fighter that's getting like a break from a match and they're helping you out, you turn around and say, I don't want that fight. It's too soon for me. And they're already helping you. I mean, I can't tell you when next you might fight. <laughs> it's just politics of the game, you know what I'm saying? So, um, remember, at the end of the day, as much as we want to please the fans, everybody wants to make a living in this game, you know? Yeah. And then the other example is Dave Allen. Like, I've never seen a career. Like, Dave Allen has, like, a Benjamin Button career. You start off fighting guys like Lewis Ortiz and you end up fighting guys like Dorian Dodge. <laughs> that's, uh, that's that's crazy, isn't it? Dave Allen definitely got more lives than a cat, and he? <laughs> he's a lucky fighter, man. But and again, I think some guys just like that. Dave Price as well is just consistently kept, even if he takes a lot. You know, the fans still still will happily see David Price. You know, I think what you see is what you get. Some fighters are not so fortunate to take a loss. No one don't want to see him again. You know, <laughs> the, the the David Price uh, thing I can't say too much about on air because I, I I like the idea of living, but it's a it's an interesting case study in where boxing's headed. So what's your what's your opinion on David Price? Um, um well, Dave Allen, and do you, do you honestly feel that um uh do you not agree with? Do you feel like he's but lucky, or do you feel like? What so do you feel? so I I look at boxing from from the from the chessboard perspective, right? Every promoter wants right. to control territory. So when Frank had Josh Warrington, he had Yorkshire. Yeah? Because he right. could put the biggest shows on in Yorkshire. So Hearn doubles down in Manchester. He makes sure he's got guys like Crawler and so forth. And he goes, I've, I've still got the Northwest. Frank can have that. I'm going to take Newcastle with Ritson. So once, you, once Hearn makes that move to take Warrington... He doesn't need Dave anymore because he has a high-profile name in Yorkshire. Before that, the biggest names in Yorkshire were, for, on, on Eddie's side, were Kel Brook and Dave Allen. So now you're like, I've got Josh Warrington here. I can do a show with Warrington, Galahad and Brook. I don't really need Dave Allen anymore. Unless I'm doing a show at Doncaster Dome with Terry Harper on there. Then I'll put Dave on because he moves units. So Dave's just slowly shuffled down the pecking order now that Warrington's there. But you know what? The one thing about Dave Allen is what he's done. He's created a persona for himself so that people will watch him win, lose, or draw because he's a character. You know what I'm saying? And a lot of fighters, a lot of fans fall in love with the fighter personally rather than their boxing ability. There's some fighters we fall in love with because they're great fighters. You know, they look attractive. They box well. They box brilliant. But you can't stand their personality. You know, that was like Floyd. We loved Floyd. Some people like Floyd for his 
his boxing ability. Some people liked him for his character. Some people didn't like him for his character, but respected him as a boxer. Dave Allen, I don't think he ever was looked at as going to be like a world champion, but his personality is so grabbing. People gravitate to him that they're going to watch him because it's him. Do you know what I'm saying? And I think he's done it. If you if you do that, you can have a long career in boxing. You know, because remember, boxing is your payment in boxing is based on who comes to see you. Your fan base, you know, you, you know, your fan base determines your salary in some cases. You're right, and and it's one of the things that makes boxing unique, right? Like football. Yeah, it is. Football. Yeah, I, mean, yes. I support my football team. I don't necessarily support a player. I support my football team because yeah, I identify exactly. with the institution. I don't have an institution mm -hmm. in boxing. I only no, have I the boxer. The play. Players come and go. You know yes. what I'm saying? In football. Yeah. Whereas boxing, and this is why boxing is such a dangerous business model. Look how many people right. are spiritually invested in Joshua. If Joshua retired today, those guys aren't necessarily going to stay in the sport. Like Mayweather. When Mayweather stopped boxing, all that money went with them. Like once Mayweather left, yeah. he took the money with him because no one was making a hundred million after Floyd. Yeah, and people, a lot of people, and because obviously people talk about casuals and you got your hardcores, but the casuals is what brings in the money. The casuals that tune in once, once in a while, and and the casuals don't really fall in love with fighters. They fall in love. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's personalities they fall in love with. Yeah, and, uh, Joshua carries his own army. What do you mean? He ca Joshua carries his own army. There are people there, if you said name me five boxers, it starts and stops with Anthony Joshua. You might get Dillian, you might get Fury, you might get Wilder, but you're not going to get, uh, I'm trying to think, you're not going to get a Shikan Pitters on that list. You're not going to get a Spider Richards on that list. They're just going to be like, look, I know. Uh, Joshua won gold in the Olympics in the first, Olympics to be held in London, you know. I think it was the first one. Don't quote me on that. But he won 2012 gold and he was a heavyweight. And heavyweights always get attention, the most attention. Um, he's on, he was on BBC News, he was on ITV, he was plastered all over the TV. So now, you know, little Susan having her tea in her living room sees him and goes, oh, that Joshua's a nice boy, ain't he? You know what I mean? When is Susan in her living room going to see Spider Richards or Shaq Ann? She's not going to get the opportunity because, you know, the, the TV companies have got no reason to interview Spider right now as it stands. You could, look, you could drag Susan and her grandkids all the way to Wembley to watch. They'd forget who Craig was after the fight. As long as they get their Joshua fix... Yeah. Do, do you know what it's yeah. like? It's like Hulk Hogan. Remember, like Hulk Hogan would run down to the ring, he'd get beaten up a bit, he'd hulk up, he'd kick you in the face, he'd leg drop you, everyone goes home happy. Right. Yeah, wrestling is the same. Everyone stays to watch The Rock. But then sometimes, you know, you, you, you might get the badass Billy Gunn in there as well and you'd enjoy that for a little bit or Rikishi and Scotty uh, Duarte and all. Like some people would would know these guys if you're hardcore into wrestling, but if you was just you like something, and there's some people that only know the rock from wrestling. You know what I'm saying? It's just the big names are always going to carry the weight, and you know I think guys like when you talk about the, just just compare it to wrestling. Let's go off track a little bit. When the Rock and Stone Cold and were heavy into wrestling, they helped the careers of all the guys underneath them because they elevated the sport of wrestling. Well, by being so big and be able to attract the masses. Joshua has done that. But British boxing, everybody, I 
people are going to hate me for saying this, but I personally, just in my own personal belief, people need to, con- to thank Joshua for what? For the fact that him being there has made British boxing what it is today, and it's big as it's ever been right now. I'll go back to it. You could thank Frotch and, and Groves. Fury as well, recently. Fury as well. Fro- and Fury as well. For me, it's Frotch and Groves. That second fight at Wembley, it was a new level. You know, you know when you've been around boxing long enough and you know something's different. I remember I can kind of remember Lennox versus Frank Bruno. And I was like, that doesn't feel like this. This feels bigger. This feels like the whole country's invested in this fight. Now, yeah, yeah. How they were able to spin that story. But then, but then after, after the George Groves and Frotch fight, where, where did boxing go after that? Kel Brook, Sean right. Porter. From where I stood, everybody, I don't know, people that would, people would always come to me. Like you got casuals that always call me after Joshua fights or calls me, you know, just 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 because they want to talk about Joshua and want to talk about boxing. I, I always get, I never really got those calls after Frutch and Growers, but when Joshua won his world title and or when he fought Klitschko. You know, I had more people, messaged, loads of people talking about boxing and saying, oh, did you watch this? And similar with the Fury situation recently, with Fury and Wilder, you know, all the outsiders that don't really watch boxing have all of a sudden just jumped onto boxing now. And I guess this is, what, this is why I go back to Frotch Groves, because once you show the world, look, boxing can fill out Wembley, you're basically telling the country this is a big sport in a way that it wasn't before. So now someone like Joshua, you, you turn it around. You go, okay, we now know that you can fill Wembley. So AJ, yeah. who could you fight that would fill Wembley? And so you get a list of people. You go, I, yeah, I think we could do something with Vlad. We could do something with Tyson. We could do something with Wilder. Maybe Dillian at a push. And then now all you're thinking about now is how do we build the, the narrative to get there? Yeah, and also I think you, you have to remember after watching uh, Groves 2, the first one was so good, we wanted to see the second one. But after the second one was done, what was next? What oh, was man, next? We, we got you what we needed. Saying? Exactly. But with Joshua, he's done, he does it, and then he's got someone else. It's always something next. And when there's something, it keeps people engaged in it. And now you've got more fans involved in the sport, more people interested, and it brings more numbers to the game. And that's what I think is when they, you've got someone that's like what I said about The Rock and he hit his prime, The Rock had a good two, three-year run after that where he was just the man hitting it and Stone Cold as well. And everybody underneath him was getting more money and getting bigger names because more and more people were just consistently tuning in and tuning in and watching. After Frotch and Groves, what was the next fight for, for, for these guys? You know what I mean? Were they, were they drawing down stage numbers again? Whereas Joshua, he's consistently drawing these numbers. Do you know what I mean? But if you remember, Frotch retired. That, w- that was the thing. He retired yeah, like exactly. Floyd did, and he exactly. took that money with him. Exactly. We needed to and see Frotch lose to someone. So let's say he had fought DeGale and lost. That would have kept some of that money in the that sport. Whether he lost or won, I think DeGale, uh, Frotch would have been a beautiful fight to watch right after that. Um, obviously with DeGale winning the Olympic gold and sort of, coming up, you know, you would have loved to have seen that. And I also would have loved to have seen the girl grows again. You know what I mean? So, it's, it's, you know, I think once we've got a continuous cycle and boxing keeps coming and going, you know, and, and, and sorry, not coming and going, keeps, keeps coming 
and we're getting show after show, fight after fight, and it's consistent. And through Joshua, we've now got Dillian White, who brought up a good rivalry with Joshua. I mean, that was one of the best build-ups to a fight I've seen in years. Then them two, like, your heart will fail you, trust me. What, are you a doctor? That, that there for me is just beautiful. It really hyped the fight. It really made it. And I'm all for that. I love it. I do love that side of boxing because it, it, it brings people in, you know what I mean? The build-ups are beautiful sometimes. And we've just had so many good nights. And, and Eddie Hearn, as much as you say, he's been the man behind all of this, you know. For the last few years, he's been the man that's been bringing all these big occasions. So that's why for me, personally, I feel like we've got to give it up to him and Joshua as well because they've made this game what it is. You know what I'm saying? To He's an like, extent. Eddie Hearn's Vince McMahon. You know? <laughs> he might as well be Vince. He is Vince McMahon, isn't he? You know? Well, and, and I think, and so here's Hearn's problem. He tries too much to be like Vince McMahon. But the thing that makes Vince McMahon, like Dana White, the people they are, is simple. They own the whole ecosystem. So Vince tells you, if you don't fight this other guy, you're not earning any money. Full stop. But, yeah, but he's, they're, they're all different sports, though, yeah. you know. So, Hearn... I think, I think in any case, McMahon sort of... I don't think he, he created his own... He created his own thing. He owns everything, doesn't he? And Dana White owns, owns UFC. He doesn't own MMA, he owns UFC. So, saying that, match and boxing would have to create their own own thing separate away from any other promotional company, which, you know, I heard... PBC were planning to do that at one time where they were going to get rid of all the different belts and just have one belt like the UFC do. And um, I don't know, is that a good or a bad thing? I think the only thing I think needs to be good is for fighters to be paid on time and paid properly. You know what I'm saying? And as long as it works and the fans are happy. I think all I'm promoters all... pay their guys on time. No. Don't believe that. No, no. no. No, no, I know. I know those BT checks. Uh, they're landing at the right time, right amounts. I don't. No, I can't speak for BT because I, I don't. I don't have any fighters that um, fight under BT. I can say definitely for um, for Matram and um, MTK, who I've worked with, they all pay on time. But you know, <laughs> who doesn't pay on time? Ah, well, that's, I'm, I'm not going to get into that. I like the. <laughs> Okay. Oh, okay. Just checking. <laughs> no, but here, so so here. And then, oh, but you know, you, you hear the stories, innit? I don't want to go into, into the past. I mean, there's, there's certain people that have not been paid on time by promoters, and I, and I've said to you privately that for me, that's the biggest, the biggest sin in boxing. Obviously, you can say about the, the but if you if you don't even imagine you've been through a fight. I mean, you heard Shannon Briggs say about he got robbed after he fought Klitschko. Imagine that. You, you, you put your life on the line, you've been knocked out, you're told you're going to make close to a million and you walk away with $30,000. I mean, come on, man. That's wrong. It's just it's just so wrong. And no one's getting going to jail for it. No one's getting in trouble. And that money's not coming to the fire. The fire goes through so much enough. Like, we need to, you know, this, this boxing saves people's lives. You know, there's boxers that don't make a lot of money and, and are doing this because they're trying to provide for their family and that's the only thing they know to do is to fight. The least you can do is pay the man what he's earned. You know what I'm saying? That's the least. 
all right, you might rob him of a decision or something. All right, we can we can move on from that. But if you take his money as well, <laughs> you know that's just criminal. You know what I'm saying? That's why, I, and I see it from the fighters' perspective when I say that. You know, I'm 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 dead against fighters being robbed of their purses. Dead against it. But you know what? A lot of it is though. A lot of these kids don't read contracts, or they don't get someone to read it for them, and I don't understand why. Yeah, it's true. You know, when you... they need to have decent managers around them as well, and and the right people advising them what they're doing. And that's the problem. So the board, if you look at what the board do, the board say you have to have held one kind of board license for three years before you can manage. And you're almost like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't see what having three years as a fighter, three years as a second, three years as a timekeeper or a judge, what does that do for being able to manage? I think what it probably does is just give you, like, that you know you have an insight on how boxing is run. You've been in and around boxing for three years. You don't even need that, though, right? I don't need that. Because all I'm going to no, do is I'm going to look at a contract and I'm going to negotiate, right? That's all I'm going to do. So, yeah. so, so whether you can throw an uppercut or not, whether whether a round is three minutes or not, is yeah, all no, irrelevant. So much more, so much more to it as well. As a manager, you've also got to, you've got to negotiate certain fights for your fight. You know, you, some fights might be too soon for your fight. You know, you want a good manager that's going to spot that. And I think having that experience in boxing gives you that ability to read a fighter and read a situation and be like, oh, no, listen, they're, they're, they're trying to get us on this one, which happens. You know, there are sharks and dogs and in and, and, and this game. You've got to have a manager that's on point and knows boxing, that he's not just going to sign you up to every and every little fight that gets, that gets offered to you. You get offered 20 grand to fight someone and then you're trying to boost the fighter's profile and then it's the most they've ever made in a fight and you take that fight and you realise, well, hey, this fight was too soon. Do you know what I mean? No, 100%. But then I look at it and I go, so if I'm a timekeeper, okay, what will timekeeping do in terms of my boxing knowledge? The answer is not much. And I'd suspect the reason they do that is they like to keep everything in-house in terms of boxing. So yeah. keep the outsiders away from the sport because that way we can keep doing what we want to do. The minute you get outsiders in, because all, all that would happen if you got outsiders in D, is they'd go, where are our gaps? We, we don't really understand this boxing thing. Let's get one guy who understands boxing. Let's get him on board. He can be our brains in all of this. And then all of a sudden, you can start running boxing management companies properly. All the taxes get paid. Like you ain't got to charge someone 50% of their purse anymore because you've got multiple income streams. You can say, no, 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 no. Look, we're gonna we're gonna treat boxing like every other sport. LeBron doesn't pay his agent fifty percent; he pays his agent ten percent, and he knows that will never change. You know, boxing's got a lot of things wrong, and and maybe that's one of the things I do is I like to shine light on those things and go, look, this is how messed up the sport is, and I always do that from a perspective of it either hurts. Boxers or it hurts trainers. I get annoyed that trainers don't have a contract. I get hurt that trainers get 10% and managers get 25%. Yeah. Because yeah. it's wrong. I agree, yeah. I, I, I do think trainers should get more because they, they get put through more. 
I'm saying I was a trainer, but um, to be a trainer, you have to be passionate about boxing, you know, because it takes you're doing as much hours as a as a as much long hours as the the fighter is. You know, you're in the gym with the fighter every every day. Multiple fighters sometimes. Exactly. You know, I remember when I used to spend time with Shane, and you'd watch Shane, right? And Carl, Carl would come in the morning. Then it'd be David. Then it'd be Josh. Then it'd be someone. I mean, then it might be George. And right, right at the beginning, he had to shoot between the different gyms. And I'm looking at Shane. I'm like, mate. By the time you get to forty, what are you going to be like physically and mentally? Because it was it was a he had a hard day. All for ten percent. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's a lot of grind, and people don't realize the battering what you're doing your pads and stuff, which has made me sort of. Um, I had numerous injuries from doing so many pads. It's made me reluctant to do. You know, people always say to me, oh, "Let me come down for some pads." And well, my friend, it's not that easy. I can't just keep putting my body through this, so that when I do get into my prime of coaching, I want to have something left to give these guys. You know. And it's, it's, it's wear and tear. It's a lot of wear and tear. You know, we trainers go through a lot physically more than what fighters because we're there all the time, you know. Uh, I do the, I, you know, I do all the exercises. I do all the mobility stuff. Like, I'm just like, I'm about preserving my joints because, woo. Like, especially, you know, sometimes you get those cavemen that want to do pads and they're just, they're swinging for the fences. And you're like, why? Why are you doing this? You know, once yeah, I, I got angry, that. right? Once I got angry, I, I took my glove, I took my pads off, put my gloves on. I said, mm. "Now you hold the pads, and you tell me what you want me to throw." And I just started right. belting the pads like, the way they were doing. I was like, "Look, this is what you're doing to me. How did that feel?" Mm. That, you know, those that don't you listen must feel. Do you know? Um... When you're doing pads, the more elite of the fighter that you work with, it actually does improve you as a as a pad man. And you can, you know, I like to take heavy shots on the pads. You know, when I first started working with the boys down at um, the matchroom gym, they were more of a, no disrespect to any of the boys that was at Peter's gym before, but they were more elite fighters than what I used to work in with. You know, and stepping into that arena with working at Felix Cash, who's got quick hands, strong fire. Martin J. Ward, very skillful. John Ryder, big puncher. Uh, you know, Ted Cheeseman, consistent mid-range, strong fighter. You know, it was just different seeing how these guys threw their shots. And, their t- and it helped me improve just to see it. So now when they get on the pads with a fighter, instantly from the first three or four punches, I can kind of tell you what level this fighter's at, you know, just by working with them. And I think if you if you know how to use pads right, people say, oh, they're just padmen. Nah, you have to know how to use it. You know, whichever method you have in training a fight, you have to utilize that. You know? And it has to fit into an overall framework. And I say this, like, for me, when I talk to a trainer, we're going to talk about the mm. pad routines because that's a part of it. But we're also going to talk about what you do with them on the bags. What do you do with them? And their footwork. What do you do with them when they're shadow boxing? What do you do with them when they're sparring? Because there are a lot of guys who look good on Instagram, but when you watch them actually doing the things that create value for a boxer, they're lost. 
They're not great communicators. They don't know what they're looking for when they watch sparring. It's terrible. Yeah, this is what I was saying, you know. And I, I was trying to study Tony from, from, from even the way he addresses a fighter in the corner, his mannerisms, how he, how he presents what he's trying to say. Because in any case, you might have to tell a fight, you're looking terrible. Not say those exact words, but how will you word that to the fighter? How will you explain to him without breaking his confidence that he's not looking good right now and he needs to sort it out? I think that that's that's uh, also key. As I said, as I said, it's interpersonal skills. You know how you need to know how to talk to people, and most importantly, you need to know how to talk to fighters because fighters respond to different. Because they're fighters, they don't respond to maybe listen uh, make that nice talking sometimes, and sometimes they don't respond to sort of aggressive talk. You know, you have to understand the man in front of you. You know, I've seen some coaches slater their fighters in the corner, man. And tell them you fucking shit. Excuse my language. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but you're effing this. You're terrible. And I just think, man, I, you know, you can't say that to a fighter because remember, this is you know he he's fighting. You can't break him down so that he has no fight left in him. He needs to feel himself and needs to feel in himself that he's strong. He's tough. He can go out there and 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 and, and you know. Let his nuts hang, you know what I mean, for lack of better words. He needs to feel that that type of person. And if you're breaking him down consistently and, and making him feel small because he's not shanting his shit, some guys might not respond well to that, you know? You're That's absolutely right. It is. And, and, and one of the things I tell people about training, I say, when you've got a minute to talk to a fighter, you really can't give them anything technical. Like, you don't, it's not going to sink in. You're literally saying to a fighter, look, I need you to turn it up a bit or I need you to protect yourself in there. Like, it's very, very general. And then that's when you find out how good a trainer you are because they should be able to take that little trigger point and then build out a wider a wider solution. Because you know what? We were talking about this at the lodge the other day. Right. The art of training is me sharing my language of boxing with a fighter. So by the time we've mastered it, we're not talking in long form. We're talking in shortcuts because you've understood it in such detail that I can just say to you, listen, I need, I need you to turn the juice up. And you know exactly what that means. Or I need, I need you to go back to what we worked on on Wednesday. You know exactly what that means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you have that relationship, and they understand the code and the, the, the slang in which you're speaking. Because you've built that with them, and that's also I think is is very key to building a relationship. You see, like uh, if you watch Andre Ward and Virgil Hunter, he, most of the times in the corners, he's not really saying what he needs to do with his punch selection. When he's looking, not looking so good, he's like, "Come on, you know what we came here to do." You know, you know what we and he's and he's basically invoking that 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 fight inside of his fire. He's not, you know. I think even when people were talking about Tunde and his motivationals, uh, what he said in the corner, but he has that relationship with Yard that he knows the certain things to invoke Yard and to bring out the best in him. So he might not say what us on the outside think he should say because we don't work with Yard. But he might not respond to, oh, jab, throw your backhand, throw your. Left. He might not respond to that. Who's better to know than the trainer? You know what I'm saying? So it's um, 
like you said, it's, 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 those are, those are, that's the most one of, one of the most important things I think in, in building relationships with fire and being a good trainer is having that relationship so that they they know exactly what you mean when you say what you say. Yeah, and and that's why that's why I'm a big believer in once you pick a trainer, stick with them. Yeah, and and mm-hmm. so and so it means it's a thousand percent important that when you when you decide to turn over, you choose someone you believe in. Because yeah. you don't want to be switching trainers. Like I'm going through that with a with a friend at the moment where I'm just saying you need consistency. A a, a, cons- a bad trainer is on a consistent basis better than good trainers on a sporadic basis. It, consistency, consistency is greater than any negative trainer can be. That you know what I mean? Like it's that consistency that really makes the difference. Because, and a lot of people don't get that. There's this myth that somehow you're going to end up with a Floyd and Roger relationship with every one of your trainers. And that's just not real. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you will. Like, there's, there's some people you connect with and it, it, it goes beyond boxing. But there are some people where you both know, right, we've got a job to do. We can do it reasonably well. But I might not, do you know what I mean? I care about you, but you might not invite me to your christening. And I get that, but it's all good. And so we're going to stop part one here because it's a two and a half hour interview and I, you know, I understand that people want to take this in, in bite-sized chunks. So there's a part two coming up where we continue the conversation. I think we get a bit more into some of the Joshua stuff. And, you know, just as we said at the beginning, it's, it's, it's a conversation between two guys that have known each other in the sport of boxing for a while. I think, you know, the, the aim of this interview is actually to get you guys you know, familiar with who Don is and I, we'll do a part two, three, four, and in those ones, we'll start to zero in on some topics that you guys will want more information on. But this is more the, the helicopter view of Don, what he thinks about boxing and what he's done in the sport. So I hope you enjoyed that. And we're going to hit a part two coming up next.